Advents. Well, this year, our Advent series in worship and sermon has focused on the return of Christ. Sermons have come from 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, two first-century letters from the Apostle Paul to Christians in the city of Thessalonica, which focus on the return of the King. We've looked together at four chapters in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, where end times prophecy is discussed at some length, but today a different kind of text, three short texts, three prayers that the apostle prays for the church, including this one, 1 Thessalonians 3.13. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father, when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Not every prayer starts with, Dear Heavenly Father. Some prayers do not address God directly, grammatically. They address other people, but they're asking that God will do something for them. Here's another one, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Most Sundays we end our service with a benediction, a prayer of blessing. And that's what these are, prayers of blessing. Here's the third from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. I think you may find it helpful to have your Bibles open to First and Second Thessalonians where we'll look more closely at the three brief texts, the prayers for the second advent that you heard Leo read a few minutes ago. First and Second Thessalonians, two very thin letters in the New Testament, so even though I haven't given you the specific verse references yet, you should have no trouble finding them if you are in either First or Second Thessalonians. But during World War I, the story goes, a commander was preparing to lead his troops into battle after a furlough, and it was a dismal, gray, rainy day, a lot of mud everywhere. They walked forward with slumped shoulders, depressed, fearful, knowing what lay ahead, more mud, more trouble, probably, you know, almost certainly, death for some of them. Nobody sang, nobody spoke. It was a depressing scene. As they marched along, the commander looked at a bombed-out church building and through the open front door could see in the sanctuary a statue of Christ on the cross. And as he looked at that, he thought about the triumph of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. Triumph that followed suffering. And so he said to his troops, eyes right. And everybody looked right, saw the Christ figure there, 
we're reminded of how God triumphed through our Lord's suffering. And somehow that made a difference in their step. They straightened up. They marched in time. And a few even smiled. Now, I think the Apostle Paul would like that story. In First and Second Thessalonians, he prays for his flock and because the Holy Spirit has preserved this in Scripture, prays for you and for me, speaking of the encouragement and hope that we experience when looking back on the first second or the first coming of Christ and the encouragement and hope that we experience when we look forward to our Lord's second coming. When Jesus came the first time, he triumphed over all of God's enemies through his death and resurrection. And when he comes again, his triumph will be complete. And meditating on those facts, those great gospel truths, meditating on the first advent and the second advent of our Lord should stiffen your spine, put a little spring in your step, and shoot spiritual adrenaline into your veins. Consider one of the prayers that Paul prays for his readers in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 16 of 2 Thessalonians 2 reads, once again, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. I emphasize the word gave intentionally. Although this prayer ends uh, a chapter focused on the second advent, it also glances back to the first advent when in his undeserved grace, God gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. And this is what those British soldiers experienced how you and I need some encouragement and hope in these days. <laughs> Alexander Solzhenitsyn, exiled to America from Soviet Russia, was speaking to a group of opinion leaders when he said, a decline in courage may be the most striking feature which an outside observer notices in the West in our day. Now imagine that. Of all the things that Solzhenitsyn could have fingered as he, the outside observer, came in and tried to understand Western culture. He could have talked about the sexual revolution. He could have talked about corruption in government. But what he fingered as the most outstanding, striking feature in Western culture, in his opinion, was a decline in courage. And he went on to add that this decline in courage is particularly noticeable among elites and then filters down into the general population. More recently, Senator Josh Hawley was speaking to a group of conservative Bible-believing Christians talking about the challenges that we face in our day, spiritual darkness, cultural erosion, and all the rest. And he said, we Christians need a baptism of courage in our time. And he added, and we need a baptism of hope, which gives birth to courage. Well, that's what Paul's talking about. May God encourage your hearts. He gave us 
eternal encouragement and good hope. Now may he continue to do what he has already begun to do. I've pointed this out before. Maybe you didn't need it pointed out. You can read. But the word encouragement includes the word courage. Encouragement is not just about giving somebody a pat on the bat, say, saying well done, uh, trying to lift their spirits about the performance that they just stumbled through. Encouragement is about you and I speaking the truth in love to one another so that courage is born in our hearts or fanned into flame. And Paul knows that the same God who gave us encouragement through the first advent will be trusted to continue giving us the encouragement that we need as we wait for the return of the king. So when will that be? How long do we have to wait? And what will our culture look like before the king returns? Well, some of us are concerned not so much for ourselves, but for our children and our grandchildren, the kind of world that we are leaving them. And if you are among them, then I hope that this short piece by a youth pastor in Arkansas will encourage you. I've shared it in smaller groups, but not, I think, from the pulpit yet. This youth pastor writes, don't feel sorry for or fear for your kids because the world they're growing up in is not what it used to be. God created them and called them for this exact moment in time that they're in. Their life was not a coincidence or an accident. Raise them up to know the power they walk in as children of God. Train them in the authority of his word. Teach them to walk in faith knowing that God is in control. Don't teach them to be fearful or disheartened by the state of the world, but hopeful that they can do something about it. Every person in all of history has been placed in the time they were in because of God's sovereign plan. He knew Daniel could handle the lion's den. He knew Esther could handle Haman. He knew David could handle Goliath. He knew that Peter could handle persecution. He knows that your children can handle whatever challenges they will face in this life. He created them for it. So don't be scared for your children but be honored that God chose you to parent the generation that is facing the biggest challenges of our lifetime. Rise up to this challenge. Raise Daniels, Davids, Esthers, and Peters. Your children were born for such a time as this. We find another prayer for strength in another Thessalonian benediction. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 Verse 13, may God strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Let's work from the back to the front in this text and begin with that last phrase, when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. Who are the holy ones? You know who Jesus is, right? <laughs> who are the holy ones? Well, maybe people, saints, Christians who have died before the Lord's return. Maybe angels. Probably both. We saw the first week of this series that when the king comes back, he will be accompanied by all those who have fallen asleep in him. 
fallen asleep, uh, a metaphor for physical death. They're with the Lord now, and when he comes, they're going to come with him. So holy ones certainly includes people. And then in last week's message, we saw that when the king returns, he will be accompanied by powerful angels. So I take it that this text, 1 Thessalonians 3.13, speaks of both people and millions, that is millions of Christ followers and an angel army. Now, just think about that. We read in the Christmas story that when those shepherds outside Bethlehem saw one angel, the angel of the Lord, they were sore afraid, as the King James puts it. Now we're to picture the skies opened and millions of Christ followers and probably millions of powerful angels and at the head of this procession, the Prince of Heaven himself. And on that great day, you and I will want to be blameless and holy. Not shrinking back in fear or embarrassment that we didn't love and serve Him as we should, but eager to hear His words, well done, good and faithful servants. Blameless does not mean sinless, or nobody would be able to look our Lord in the eye on the day of His return. But, Thanks to his mercy and grace, when we sin, we can confess and be cleansed and keep short accounts with our master so that when he does return, we don't have to think about the unfinished business, the unconfessed sins that make us hang our heads in shame on the day of his appearing. We can be, in that sense, blameless and holy and Holy basically means set apart. In both Old and New Testament, that's the root meaning. In some contexts, like this one, it implies moral purity, but the basic meaning of the word is special, different, set apart. So, for example, Jennifer and I have some holy Christmas dishes. They're not more moral than our everyday plates, but they're special. We only bring them out for use in December. We also have a sanctified crystal punch bowl, but that did not make an appearance this December. Evidently, somebody put it in a box last year without labeling the box. We are God's holy people. Let's be what we are. But that's hard, isn't it? It's hard to be sanctified or holy. It's hard to say no to self and yes to demanding virtues. Hard to love God unreservedly, heart, soul, strength, and mind 24-7. Hard to love those pesky neighbors as ourselves. And so Paul, knowing this very well, prays that God will strengthen us, strengthen our hearts. I'm told that to train for a marathon, just a little over 26 miles, experts recommend that, um, that runners not routinely run more than 20 miles in training. Why that is, I don't know. Um, I've never run six miles, let alone 20 miles. Um, but I'll trust them. 
that they know what they're talking about. But one result is that in the actual race, even well-trained, well-practiced runners may find themselves in unknown territory after the 20-mile mark. They don't know whether they're going to hit a wall, whether they're going to cramp up, whether they're going to overheat, whether they're going to be able to finish or not. It seems to me that in this race called life, you and I don't know what the last stretch holds, but we do know that the finish line is relatively close, that God will answer this prayer for strength, and that by His grace we can keep on keeping on putting one foot in front of another. First and Second Thessalonians urge us to look, look, the finish line is right up ahead. Jesus said he would come soon. It doesn't matter how many generations have come and gone. For every generation, the return of the king is near. Soon and very soon, we will see the king. So I commend to you, one last time, our 2022 congregational watchword that we introduced last New Year's Eve. Christian courage is holding on an hour longer as we watch for the return of Christ. You don't have to worry about tomorrow's challenges. You just have to hang on for one more hour. <laughs> it takes courage. What does Christian courage looks like? look like? It's, it's hanging on there for just another hour while we watch for the return of the King. One more benediction. One more prayer for the second advent. And this also from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Near the end of this first letter, Paul writes, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Now I'll pause right there and comment on that word sanctify. It means to set apart or to make holy. You may have noticed that when I talked about our punch bowl, I substituted the word sanctified for the word holy that I had been using. They basically mean the same thing. Special, set apart for God's use, God's purpose. And I'm going to join Paul in praying that God would sanctify a bunch of people who are in this room right now or online and especially young people who will face the difficult challenges of the years to come but who will stand out as different. God's men and God's women. May you demonstrate allegiance to our King, the King who came and the one who comes again. And the prayer continues, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. There's that word blameless again. Blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry about that expression, body, soul, and spirit, and get into a debate on whether the human person has two parts or three parts. The theologians can debate that for our purposes and for Paul's, I think that the verse is just echoing what it said at the beginning of the verse. May God sanctify you through and through, however many parts there are to the human person. May God sanctify you, body, soul, and spirit, through and through, from the top of your head to the tip of your toes, outwardly, inwardly, in thought, word, and deed. May God make you holy or another way of saying it, holy with the other spelling, loyal subjects of our King.
If by any chance you wondered why I started this sermon with the benediction in 2 Thessalonians, instead of taking them in order, wonder no longer. I wanted to end the sermon with this, verse 24 of 1 Thessalonians 5. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. He will do it. Paul prays that God will make his readers holy and blameless, and he's so confident that this prayer is in accord with God's will that he ends saying, God will do it. The one who calls you, the one who chooses you, the one who brings you to faith, the one who opens your eyes to see the truth of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel and enables you to embrace the gospel, the one who calls on you to now be what you are, kingdom people, children of the heavenly Father, he can be counted on to work in you and to work on you and to work through you. We don't live a blameless life by our own efforts. Though certainly effort is included, we are not puppets passive in this matter of sanctification. But Paul knows that it's God who by His Holy Spirit answers Paul's prayer. The Apostle says something almost identical in his first letter to the Corinthian church. Listen, you'll hear echoes of what we've already heard this morning. He writes, As you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed, God will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Christian, even if you stumble, even if you have a soiled conscience right now, take heart. God has promised to in that great day make all who trust in His Son as Lord and Savior worthy of His appearing. He will do it. Years ago, the New York Times ran an ad that said this, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will all be able to put together a world of unity and peace. In other words, we have in us what it takes. We have the light within us And so we can dispel the darkness of this world. We can overcome poverty and injustice and and evil. If we just work together, we can create a world of unity and peace. Can we? Is that the message of Christmas? One of the most thoughtful world leaders of the late 20th century had his doubts. Vaclav Havel was the first president of the Czech Republic who had a unique vantage point from which to evaluate both socialism and capitalism. And he was not very optimistic that either would, by itself, solve the greatest human problems. He knew that science, unguided by moral principles, gave us the Nazi Holocaust. He concluded that neither the technology of the state nor the free market alone could save us. And he wrote this. Keep in mind, this is not a preacher. This is not the Apostle Paul. This is a politician who recognized something here. He said, 
pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself, nor is democracy alone enough. A turning to and seeing of God is needed. The human race constantly forgets that he is not God. Well, I hope that the meaning of Christmas is clearer for you who have been tracking with me for the last few weeks because we have focused on both Advents, the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. I hope it's clear that the story we are in is a story about what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will yet do. I hope, no, I pray with the Apostle Paul that God will strengthen and encourage us all, making us blameless and holy at the return of the King. And He will do it. Let's bow and pray once again. Father, will You take these words, ancient words, but still living words, apply them to our hearts, You know, I sure don't, but you do how each individual here most needs to have the Holy Spirit apply the word to his or her circumstances. Some of us need our chins lifted up like those soldiers in World War I. Some of us need to really believe that the king is coming back. It's been a long time and and we wonder about that word soon and And some of us are struggling with temptations that defeat us again and again. And some of us are concerned about our children and our grandchildren. But we pray, as the Apostle Paul prayed, that all the truths that he expounded in these two small letters about the return of the King, with glances back to the first coming of the King, would encourage and strengthen us that we might live for the King in the days to come. We pray in his name and for his sake and let all his people say, Amen. And now receive this word of blessing from the Apostle Paul. May God strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones and his people said, Amen.